Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim, and today I am joined by our our special guest, our favorite friend, our frequent collaborator, Brad Jerzak. Hi, Brad. Hi. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, welcome. Sorry for those who were looking for us on Facebook Live. We had a slightly late start due to some technical difficulties, um, but we're on now. So... Um, those who may have missed it, we had Brad with us for episode 2-8 uh, about four weeks ago, and we were having such a good time that I hit hit the pause button after an hour and said, let's uh, pick it up again in a few weeks. And we've had some people uh, email in some questions uh, since then. So I should just make mention to people, uh, if you didn't already know, you can email podcast at impactnations.com and uh, that will come to us and we'll have a look and we can ask our guests those questions. Uh, so if you've got some questions, uh, things like how many angels can fit on the head of a pin, that's sort of the, the really important stuff, uh, then send it our way because we, we know some pretty smart guys like Brad. <laughs> so Brad, uh, how many angels do fit on the head of a pin? Uh, that's sort of a late scholastic question and I only study people who are dead 500 years before that so. <laughs> just i think we've got a podcast title already i only study people who are dead that's good <laughs> yeah yeah I, well it's it, there was somebody else so i i know i'm ripping them off but it, it was like from sixth sense it's like i see dead people and so this is a bit like <laughs> <laughs> that's good i listen to dead people that's good so, um, <laughs> Um, well, we're going to jump right into listener questions, uh, but for people's just uh, reference, we're going to be talking uh, again today a lot about Brad's uh, newest book, uh, which uh, is called, do, Brad, do you just call it In, or do you call it In? Uh, yeah, the In is the is the title, but it has long subtitle, Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb. Abba and Lamb, awesome. And it's uh, all on, um, it's on Amazon. But, you bet. Um, yeah, and yeah, we'll, we'll link latest. to that in the show notes and stuff so that people can just click on that and jump right to it. And I would recommend it. It's a great read. Um, no pictures, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Tim. <laughs> I, I've really enjoyed it. Um, but before we jump into questions about uh, that, some of the stuff that's come out of that book, I, there was one question that I had for you uh, that came in just this afternoon, actually, and uh, I'll just, I'll read it straight from the listener's email here. It says, recently, I've been exposed to the orthodox thought of the eighth day of creation. This seems like such a beautiful expression of our faith, and I'd like to have more understanding of the fullness that it embraces. Uh, and I'll admit, I didn't know what they were talking about. Do you? Yeah, I, I won't be able to share with them the fullness of what it embraces, and I will say that I may interpret it differently than others, but here's my sense of it. And that is on the sixth day of creation, uh, God begin, God fashions man. And this is, it's a different verb there than all the other things he created that he spoke into being. And he creates Adam. Um, he fashions him from this clay, raises him up, and that's the sixth day. Uh, and yet, um, even having breathed in the spirit of life, there is this idea that really the eighth day of creation has to do with the perfecting of man, the completion of the, of, of the true human, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. And so, um, and, and when is this finished? When is, when is humanity, the creation of humanity completed or finished? Oh, I just gave it away. On the cross, Jesus says hmm. it is finished. It's accomplished. It's not only that our redemption is accomplished, although it's certainly included in that, but in terms of redeemed humanity is accomplished. And so the idea is that, um, that as you know, though we were in Adam, now we're in Christ and, and uh, to be complete as a human is, is to be complete in Christ. And so father John bear B E H R has written a magnificent book that goes into some of this that talks about, uh, uh, and the book's called becoming human. And the idea is that, Jesus Christ isn't just a revelation of true deity. He's also a revelation and the fulfillment of true humanity. And one other thing we could say about that from the early church fathers is that all of these early church fathers would talk about how, how in Christ God became human so that humans could become divine. Not that we would be God, or so to speak, but that we would be 
transfigured from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ, the divine human. And so it's sort of like by by grace will become what Jesus Christ is by nature, and that is complete humans. Um, in our in the Greek word we use is telos, uh, fullness, maturity. And so when people talk about the eighth eighth day creation, I, I suspect usually they're they're somewhere in that ballpark. That that the second Adam is really the fulfillment of our destiny, and so to be in Him is to get there. Um, yeah. Others might see it completely differently. That's sort of the gist of my impressions. Yeah. It still messes with me, the timing thing, though. I mean, Christ proclaimed it is finished on the cross, and yet uh, he, who, it's actually, it's right over my shoulder here. I was about to, I was about to quote it, but he who began a good work in me will perfect it. Uh, it is still an ongoing process. So it's like Christ's work on the f- on the cross was finished, and yet it kind of also was the firing of the gun of the beginning. Or at least when I discovered Christ, when I when I said yes to Christ, when I turned to Him, when somebody said, "Behold the Lamb," and I recognized Him, uh, that was the starting gun for my transformation into being uh, more Christ-like. And yeah, I, that I already think that's in the exactly yeah. right. Yeah, it, he, he could have also just said this, it's begun, <laughs> you know, <Indeed. laughs> so um, because certainly, certainly um, he's saying something is finished, but the, uh, the resurrection matters. His ascension matters. Mm. Pentecost matters. Yeah. My my salvation matters. The parousia or his return matters. If I, you know, so. Yeah. So it's not that he's saying this is all there is and there's nothing more to happen. Uh, but maybe then if we, if we could stop thinking of that in linear terms, mm. but to say it is finished is the cross event, which includes both death and resurrection together, sure. not divorced. Yeah. That all of that, everything, everything we're talking about begins to, it revolves around that. So not yeah. linear, but this is the axis. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm with you on that. Big thoughts. Um, all right. So t- today I'm actually I'm mostly just going to read straight from a lot of these questions because they've been pre-written for me, so that's easy. Um, so here's one. Just on the we're going to talk for a few minutes on just the nature of salvation. I, I did my best to organize some of these questions into some broader categories. So uh, last time you were with us, you were talking about the purpose of evangelism, and I, I love the way you said it. You said I want everyone to know the benefits of the cross, and uh, so that kind of prompts the question what are the benefits of the cross if you were to, to kind of list them or, or give it a succinct uh answer what what are the benefits of the cross yeah so um let me preface it by saying we're dividing up we're, we're going to talk about the truth of our being and salvation and the way of our being and salvation so one is what is it that is already accomplished in the incarnation and through easter weekend that's already a done deal. And then that's the truth of our being that as an Adam all died. So when Christ all are made alive and that this happens during his day. Um, and then the second is the way of our being. So the truth of our being now, the way of our being, that's my experience of that. So we, as we said in the, in the podcast and in my book, Romans five says, we are already forgiven and reconciled while we're still enemies, while we're still sinners. And yet there is a summons to respond to that so we can experience it. So what, what, is, what are the benefits? Um, well, we could go on and on about that, but I'll summarize a few of them. Uh, one benefit is that we have a revelation of God as he truly is. And that that revelation is that God is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. And that comes into clearest focus on the cross. But it's not just a revelation. It is that Christ takes humanity into the life of the Trinity, of triune love, Father, Son, and Spirit, this community of co-eternal divine love. And the cross brings humanity into that fellowship. And then uh, I would add to this, this, so it's a revelation of who God is. It is a bringing in to the life of the Trinity, of what man is. And then on top of that, it's this decisive victory over Satan, sin, and death. So, um, 
just to use one example of that, if he's already if he's already secured the decisive victory over sin by forgiving it, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. Why would I tell someone that? Well, so they can ex- know that and experience it. And this is what um, in the last in the episode I said. This is how John Wesley talked about it when he would meet Indian American Indians or First Nations people, and he already saw that they knew God, the Creator, and that they were worshiping and praying to Him, even in relationship with Him. But it's like, but we need to let them know about their full inheritance and the assurance of that inheritance. And so that this creator is not just the one out there who made them, but actually this creator became human, died for them to take care of the sin and death problem and rose again so that he's alive and they can know him in, in, in them, have fellowship in them. And so like, that's a lot of, that's a lot of benefits that people, uh, even God fearers uh, may not be aware of. So, so it's more like, it's sort of like you're being summoned uh, to the reading of a will where you've just inherited like billions of hmm. of goods, right? A treasury is open to you um, and now come receive the treasures. And I would say by receive, they're already yours, but experience them, right? Hmm. Experience the life that's been washed of shame. Sure. Because it has been. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's already, it is finished. <laughs> it's already been purchased yeah. for you. Um, yeah, but but this leads me into actually our next question. Um, the example you just used of Wesley's, you know, speaking to uh, a Native American who is already worshiping Creator God uh, and has acknowledged His presence, and now uh, you're able to bring a greater revelation of uh, God through Christ. But and another example in your book is Peter's encounter with Cornelius from Acts ten, right? Uh, yeah. He he encounters Cornelius who is already worshiping, um, and then he introduces him to Christ as the full revelation. Um, yeah. So just to quote your book, you said in every people whoever reveres God and performs works of righteousness is accepted by God. So the question yeah, came pause in, there for pause there for a second. Sure. That's that's not my book. That's from the book of Acts. I just quoted it. Like that's literally, <laughs> literally. that's literally a citation from <laughs> Peter's revelation that he gets from Jesus. So, so I so would have co- never said that, <laughs> but he did. <laughs> Very good. Uh, I should make my notes more clear for myself. Uh, but the question came in here. If someone does not revere God or do works of righteousness, is he or she accepted by God? So is the opposite true? Well, this goes back to way of our being and, tr- and truth of our being. So the truth of our being is that everyone is accepted by God in Christ, in the incarnation, in vicariously. Mm-hmm. But I, but I would say in 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 the practice, in the practice of our uh, of our faith practices. Um, a, I don't know. That's not what it says. <laughs> it doesn't say anything about them. So, so I want to. I don't want to overstep the text. Let's be mm-hmm. biblical here, right? Sure. So, biblically speaking, he gives us that statement, and he doesn't say anything about those who don't do that. But I would say that that um, those who do not practice righteousness, those who do not fear the Lord and pursue Him, are not experiencing um, the truth of their acceptance. Um, that. And so again, it's it's about it's about experiencing what is yours. And so maybe I don't know what would it, what would it feel like if you're if you're acting unrighteously, if you're unjust in this world, if you're cruel to others and harm them, would your conscience have any awareness of being acceptable before God? In fact, it would either be accusing you and shaming you as unacceptable. Or it would be shut down and you could sear your conference and conscience and then you're just a sociopath. So, so um, again, Romans 5 makes it clear that the whole world has been reconciled to God. Actually, so does Colossians 1, by his blood. So there is a kind of acceptance there. But this, in, in the case of Cornelius, what happens is through his pursuit of God and his righteous act, it sets him on a journey led by the Holy Spirit towards an encounter with Christ. Um, 
it seems like I can shut that journey down or delay it or turn from it deliberately. But we've got an open-hearted man and God sees that. He says, aha, we've got someone who's ripe. And maybe, maybe everyone is growing in the womb of God. But Cornelius was ripe for, for hmm. his rebirth in the yeah. waters of baptism. That's good. I like it. That was maybe that was evasive or something, but you know. Well, like, and we're, I literally don't know. <laughs> I, I'm going to corner you on some on some other things later if it was evasive. So, listeners, don't worry. <laughs> um, so, and actually, here's here's one that kind of goes straight to the heart of the matter. Um, it's a quote from John eight twenty four. Uh, that says, uh, Jesus is speaking, says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Um, yep. So is the consequence of rejecting Jesus, uh, or not revering God, I guess, as we as we read from Acts 10, uh is that dying in our sins? What and what is what does Jesus mean when he says you will die in your sins? Well, th- I mean, this is of course right. Wait, the wages of sin is death, and we mm-hmm. and and we we can die in our sins. Uh, and so I, you know, I'm not denying that at all. But what I would do, and this anticipates some other questions, I think, yeah. is we've got two kinds of texts in the New Testament. And I'll, I'll come at it from multiple doors. One doorway is to say this. We've got texts that are exclusive, and we've got texts that are inclusive. We also have texts that are conditional and texts that are unconditional. How do you harmonize them? So, um, so we could say the exclusive texts, where eternal life is conditional, on a relationship with Christ and those who don't pursue that relationship are rejected and sent into outer darkness. That's your exclusion texts. And we've got a number of those, especially, especially in the gospels and all virtually almost always metaphorical because they're in context of, of parables. Most often. Then we've got this other whole set of scriptures that are inclusive and they're not based on anything you've done or any response at all. It's like that, that Christ has come and he's the savior of the whole world. We'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, I've, I've identified probably 30 of those kind of texts. So it's inclusive and it's unconditional. So then my back to my question. Um, well, the verse you quoted would certainly be one of the conditional ones. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, if you don't believe in Christ, you die in your sins. Oh, okay. So you got people who do that, and you got people who don't do that. Now, what shall we do with these texts? And I and and this, yeah, I think this does anticipate some of the other questions, like what about, you know, I never knew you, and go away into outer darkness, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and it's like, yeah. well, wait a minute, but here's these other ones. There are everyone. Uh, God is all and in all, and every eye shall see him, and every, you know, and all of that. So let me lay out three possibilities, and I guess you get to pick one. Okay. Uh, one is that these two kinds or categories of texts simply contradict each other. So the Bible contradicts itself. On the surface, that really does seem to be how it looks. And so folks that would just identify them as simple contradictions will then be, will then tend to say, well, um, I'm just going to hold that in the, in mystery. I'm going to hold it in tension. I can't seem to harmonize it. And so I'll, I'll sort of affirm both are true, knowing that they don't really fit. And so I have to be humble about this. Okay, that's one approach. Second approach, more common, especially um, in my upbringing and the evangelical world, for example, is that you use the exclusive texts to negate the universal texts. <laughs> so... Um, well, if some are going off into outer darkness and they're shut out, then it really can't be true that every knee will bow. It can't really be true that God's willing that none would perish, but all would come to eternal life. So, so you totalize and you absolutize the, the, the exclusive texts at the expense of the, the all-inclusive texts. 
And one way that you might get around those ones is you'd say, well, uh, although it says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Really, it's not all. It's all the elect. All the children of God, but not everyone's a child of God. And uh, I used to see it that way, but I became very, very uncomfortable knowing that I was ignoring the author's clear intent. He wasn't talking about all the Christians or all the children or all the elect. He's talking about all the people. Yeah. So uh, um, I wouldn't even make I it. Person- it's, it would be kind of a redundant statement to make anyway. I think if he if he meant that because they're already in. Like yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so I I personally don't like that approach because I'm 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 prioritizing the bad news text over the good news text to the degree that I'm actually rejecting the good news text or I'm putting such a heavy caveat on them that, that I know that I was violating the author's intent. Here's a third model um, that both sets of texts are absolutely true, but they're talking about different eras in the arc of redemption. So they're not talking about the same time. Two ways to think about, uh, uh, like, uh, illustrations of that would be this. Um, you've got these texts where there's judgment, exclusion, um, weeping and gnashing of teeth, all of that in the age to come. And then you've got the other texts, which are everyone everyone is welcome, and, and God will be all and in all, and every knee will bow. And that's not in the age to come. That's at the end of the ages. So it's consecutive. We've got the, and uh, you could use the words penultimate and ultimate. That means second last and last. And so in the, in the arc of redemption to get to um, kind of an ultimate redemption, kind of some sort of inclusion of all, um, you simply assess and judgments and, and a truth and reconciliation commission and so on. So that's a third way that, that you might approach that. And, um, uh, he, 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 you know, so to illustrate that, you've got the age to come is the age where there's tears. And the age after that, the end of the ages, is when he wiped every tear from our eyes. So you got crying and then you got comfort. James says this, that there is judgment and then Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, so it's simply consecutive eras where, you know, age to come, end of ages, judgment, redemption. So I, I don't know of a third. I mean, that, that's a third way to come at it. So yeah. just to summarize them, either they're a complete contradiction and you just accept that humbly. B, you use the exclusive text to negate the inclusive text. Or C, you accept both kinds of text, but in an order. And, so, um, and I'm, I'm guessing you're yeah. falling under uh, the third camp there. <laughs> I don't know. It's really more for you to decide. <laughs> That's great. Um, okay. No, no, really. Uh, um, I, I probably, and, and of course, that's one of the reasons people think I sound like a universalist, but yeah. uh, you know, that's a whole different deal. Sure. Um, I think what's important, if you're going to talk about ultimate redemption and you don't want to just be, sort of a pop universalist or pluralist to where everyone's in and nothing matters. And, you know, no, no, no. If there is an ultimate redemption, I'll say if not as a doubt statement, but by a faith statement. Sure. If there's an ultimate redemption forthcoming, it involves dealing with the seriousness of sin. A cross that does that, a resurrection that conquers death. So that's off the table a final judgment in the age to come and a willing response to what Christ has done. And I'm like, most universalists don't call for those five things, but I'm like, no, they're absolutely essential to redemption. So those are on the table. And that's why I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't like the U word, but I don't mind. I don't mind thinking about um, the Bible. What does the Bible say about ultimate redemption? Oh, here it is. Jesus says in red letters, if I am, lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Okay. So that's an example where you go, oh, wait, but if I'm an exclusivist, I have to say, well, not really all men, just like all Christian men. It's hmm. like, really? Yeah. Is that what he means? <laughs> so <laughs> so let's talk that, brass that, tacks then. Yeah. Like, like um, 
specifics because one of the questions that came in was what if someone rejects jesus for their entire life because during our last conversation that we had four weeks ago um you know we talked about some of the reasons that somebody may reject the message of christ and just to review some of those reasons were um they're not ripe yet you know they're they're not uh the god of this age has blinded them so they cannot see and so it's not time for them to hear the message yet uh or we do a crummy job of of expressing the gospel maybe our gospel isn't very good news and they say thanks, but no thanks. That doesn't sound very good to me. Um, yep. Uh, and <clears throat> so the question came in then. Okay, but what if you know, despite intercession, despite a, a better you know maybe a uh, somebody doing a better job of delivering the gospel message, they continue to reject that message. Um, you mentioned sociopaths a few minutes ago, so that's a you know that's the extreme. Why don't we talk about that? What happens if they right up to the point of death, like they at no point on this planet Earth do they turn and say, "Yes, Jesus is the way, and I want to follow Jesus." Uh, given the the three scenarios you just talked about, let's talk about that third scenario specifically. Um, yeah, when it says they will have to pass bow, through judgment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's that penultimate judgment you're you're talking about. Yeah, and and not only them, but also me. And so this is an interesting thing. There's mm-hmm. a kind of exclusivism that is not only assumes that there are outsiders who have to go to hell forever, but there's all but they also assume I won't even have to pass through a judgment, or I'm like totally off the hook because I said the magic prayer when I was eight, and so nothing that I've ever done wrong in this life matters because I because I said the prayer. Right. And so it's like, no, 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 no. Mark chapter nine, Jesus says this. um, uh, He's talking to disciples and he's saying, look, it it is if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off because it's better to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye and one hand than into the fires of Gehenna, which we've often translated help um, with with both. But then he keeps talking for, it's a connecting word, for you will all pass through the fire or all be, actually what he says is you will all be salted with fire. But then he says, but salt is good. So make sure you have salt in yourself and be at peace with everybody. And they're like, whoa, what did you just do? So here's what he's done. First of all, he says, it's not just the bad guys that go through the fire. It's not just the non-elect. We will all be salted with fire. And you get this also in Malachi 3, that there's a refiner's fire. First Corinthians 3, we all pass through the fire. So it's not two groups of people, and one group doesn't have to go through the fire. And usually I'm in that group, right? I, I'm the one who's exempt. Yeah. It's like, no, you all do it. But then the next line is, but salt, this, salt of fi- this salty fire, it's actually good. Well, how could he say that if it's eternal conscious torment? No. Uh, and he just called it Gehenna. And he said, you know, you don't want to go there, but hang on, maybe, actually, there is a fire that refines, there's a fire that purifies you, it cleanses you of all your shame, cleanses you of wickedness, your attachments, and all of that. And this is a good thing. And then he says, uh, so make sure you have it in you. And so it's like, oh, actually, it's not even just after I die, it's in this life, I can embrace the fire of God that consumes everything in me that is not love, and I can... When he says, make sure, it's like, and you can even do it on purpose. So what he's just done there is he's taken their assumptions about what paradise and Gehenna are, and he's, in in like two verses, he's subverted the whole thing. He's subverted their us, them, in, out thinking, and he's made the fire, he's had the fire go from this this thing that you're terrified of to the thing that you want, Hmm. and that's actually good for you. And um, so that's what's in the text, and I'm like, that. That one, I spent a good year just meditating on that verse because I didn't like it when I read it. And now I love it. It's like, no, this is really actually good news. It's, why, it's why the wrath of a like father it when loves you read it? Me. Probably the reason the Pharisees didn't, you know? It means that I'm not off the hook, mm. <laughs> that I yeah. do have to pass through the fire, um, that he's actually connecting that with Gehenna somehow. And I'm like, I didn't like it because I couldn't just easily systematize it i like to get my head around things and like oh no this is at some level this is above your pay grade and then i realized uh, to embrace that ver- those verses you just have to trust him <laughs> it's yeah. 
it's, it's not about what's the fire insurance prayer I could pray to avoid this. It's like, will I trust that what he says about it is true and that it's good? Yeah. I'm like, so I moved from that kind of got to figure it out so I can control my outcome into, I trust this guy. And whatever this is, is good for me. And I don't have to be afraid because perfect love can because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who is afraid is not perfected in love. So I'm like, okay, I think, so maybe I was getting in touch with how much he loves me and how there will never be a fire that touches me that is actually doesn't consume that which is harmful. Mm-hmm. And it won't destroy anything in me that's um, my, my true self in the image of God. So you use the word destroy, so I'm actually going to just skip ahead to one of the later questions that I had written down because it's connected directly with that. Um, yep. We've, looking at a passage in Second Peter, Second um, Peter 3, 9 through 15. Um, in 3, 9, uh, Peter says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And so then I think, well, what does destroyed look like? What does destroyed mean? Uh, And so he he kind of fills in the blanks there. He says uh, in verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise. The very elements themselves will disappear in fire. The earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Um, Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this. Uh, And then he finishes off in verse 15. But remember... Our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Um, <clears throat> saved from what? Say it's like the the easy way to read that is well, saved from all that fire and destruction. Sounds like what he's saying. I think that's right. Yeah. So, um, and this is interesting because I have friends who are neither universalists nor inclusivists on the one hand, but they're also not into eternal conscious torment. And so, what they do, they're we call them conditionalists or annihilationists. And, um, and so I'll start with them and then I'll respond to them. Um, but the, the annihilationists or conditionalists, they point out that none of these warnings are about eternal conscious torment in a lake of fire. All of these are about actual destruction, non-being, perishing, death, hmm. the end, you know? And so, so, and this is the problem. So you've got people who uh, live out their lives in a way where they reject grace and they reject the love of God. And then, and then, um, and God is trying to save them as they are in this life perishing. That's a state of being already now, but it can come to a terminus. And that terminus is not hell. That terminus, or if, if they believe in hell, it'd say they're cast into the lake of fire, but then they're just consumed and destroyed. So, I mean, that really is what those words mean. It's sort of like non-being. So what is Peter saying about this? Peter is saying, well, God's not willing for that to happen. (laughs) In (laughs) fact, his plan is that he's going to save everybody from that. And in fact, if we're going to take Peter seriously and we read the whole, both of his whole epistles, he says he's gone this far, that there were those who were destroyed or perished in the flood and that and that they were bound up and in, in, in the in whatever the underworld was, and that when he died, Christ went even to save them. And so he preaches the good news to them. It literally, he evangelizes those who were judged in the flesh or destroyed, and he made them alive in the spirit, which is the same language Peter uses for Jesus' resurrection. And you're like, whoa, Peter, what, what are you saying? And he's like, <laughs> I'm saying that you— don't go destroyed. But if you do, Christ can even save you from that. And so I just think it's so tragic, though, that people take the logic of that to, to be like, well, then, then I don't have to follow Jesus. It's like, did you miss the part where you get destroyed? <laughs> and, like, it, it, and, and, and so, um, so in those kind of texts, again, my response to it would be either the annihilationists are right and you've got two groups of people uh, 
a small group of people who are saved and a big people group of people who are destroyed. And that Christ will just save the ones who don't get destroyed. He'll save them from being destroyed um, through, through being like giving your heart to Christ. And, but the majority of the world will be destroyed. Well, that's, that's okay news, but it's not like really good news. <laughs> um, uh, in terms of body count. Uh, but another way t- that you could come at it is to say that uh, the destruction he's saving us from is is the destruction of even like of everybody. And so penultimate, you get destroyed. Ultimate, he raises you up again. He goes into Hades and preaches the good news and brings you back. Um, so I'm hopeful of that. But why would I throw my life away? You know, like. Really, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just toss my life away and make it meaningless in hopes that maybe he'll come find me in Hades. That just like seems like a bad idea. And it's still a bad idea, even if it's not as bad as eternal conscious torment. It's still like really, really, really bad. And he's like, Peter's like, don't turn from Christ. You don't have to go through that. You don't want to go through that. Why would you perish? Why would you, why would you risk living in chains and... and and um, not just in the age to come, but like right now, you know, so I don't, I have no problem with the rhetorical warning that sin is very serious and it destroys you. Hmm. And even if the good news is that ultimately Christ will save you out of that destruction, um, you know, I'm thinking of my sons right now. Um, they can just go their own way. And let's say they become narcissistic and sociopathic and, and promiscuous and then end up on the streets. And then they, okay, because, you know, Jesus will save them after they die. It's like, no, it's not okay. It's terrible. Don't do that. Don't go there. And yeah. I see, I see, I kind of see Peter doing that here. He's warning people under severe pressure and persecution not to turn back because giving in to the empire that's persecuting them is is not a safe way out. So I'm just going to interrupt our conversation with Brad really quick. First off, I should say I apologize for the kind of crummy audio. We were having some difficulty as we were recording with his internet connection on the other side. But I think you're getting the gist of what he's saying. Uh, Just as he was just finishing up talking about his kids there and how he wants the best life for them and not to go down the terrible path of living on the streets, it reminded me of a program we're running here at Impact Nations called the Elevate Computer Training Program. Uh, It's being run in Uganda. You may have heard me talk about it before. Uh, It is happening in uh, uh, the slums of Kampala, where we're we're taking kids out of the slums of Kampala. uh, And we're talking, you know, young adults, uh, late teens, that sort of thing. People who have been involved in gang life uh, or trying to catch them even before they get into gang life. But uh, trying to give them another way and say, behold the lamb. And that good news is uh, that Christ is with them, Christ is there to walk with them, and Christ is the better way. Uh, And part of that better way is giving them uh, the means to support themselves without having to sell drugs, uh, going to prostitution, things like that. Uh, And for many of them, this is uh, a generational thing where their their parents have never known uh, the ability to be self-sustained and and hold a job or things like that. So uh, my friend Trinity, who I hope to have on the podcast sometime in the next coming weeks, uh, is uh, he and his team are gathering these kids out of the slums and taking them into their facility where they're training them on such things as graphic design, uh, web development, uh, photography, videography, and giving them really marketable skills and even teaching them how to market those skills on an international marketplace, uh, getting customers overseas and things like that. Um, and 
giving them uh, daily devotionals, introducing them to Christ and a, a new way, a new a new life in Christ. And I'm really excited about it. If you head to impactnations.com slash elevate, uh, you can read about it there. There's a couple of videos that they have made at the school. This is one of the cool things is that they're teaching these kids how to do videography and stuff and, and graphic design. And so part of their projects is actually making these videos about their uh, their other students and stuff. So um, I would encourage you, head to impactnations.com slash elevate, learn all about the program, see some of the videos. I think you'll be inspired. And hey, if uh, if that touches your heart and that's something you want to give towards, just go ahead and click donate there. Uh, we're looking to raise additional capital for that program right now, actually. Uh, they've seen some early success, absolutely, and we want to continue to invest in that program. So we need your help. So impactnations.com slash elevate. And now I'll return us back to the podcast. So I want to shift our conversation into a discussion about the gospel presentation. And we, we spent a bit of time talking about that last time. And I, I put you on the spot, if you recall, and had you preach the gospel to a bunch of uh, make-believe prisoners and stuff. And it was fun. Yeah. Um, but a few questions have come in. This one, uh, speaking directly from your book, and then just talking a little bit about uh, some of the four spiritual laws, actually. So uh, it says, in your book, you describe a hypothetical ninth century fisherman who worships Lair, the or Lur, I don't know, the god of the sea. Uh, your hypothetical fisherman describes himself as, quote, a good man who loves my family and labors hard to put food on our table, unquote. Uh, yep. So, and we've all heard... I mean, we hear this all the time in our culture. Well, I'm a, I'm a good person or whatever. Um, but Reformed the- reform theology seems to refute this common refrain of I'm a good person uh, and t- talks about, uh, you know, Romans 3.10, which is quoting uh, Psalms 14 and 53. No one is righteous. No one does good. Um, uh, Romans 3.19, the entire world is guilty before God. Uh, Romans 3.23, we all fall short of God's glory. Um the postmodern and modern gospel presentations include and often emphasize what we that we are all sinners and deserve death. But if we call on the name of the Lord, uh, then we can be saved from damnation, the, the damnation that we deserve, the destruction that we deserve, the, uh, to use the language we've just been talking about. Uh, the implication through those presentations is that no one's a good person and we're all wicked, terrible worms and we should feel terrible about who we are and things like that. When, and now I'm going to use your language. When we're making a behold the lamb proclamation, is it necessary to be telling people that they're inherently bad, not good, that they're inherently wicked? Just don't think they're inherently wicked (laughs) in a few steps. First of all, What is Paul up to when he's quoting those texts? And what is the context in the text he's quoting? So what Paul is up to is is that he is addressing those who have an us-them mentality. He's reaching out to Jews who have excluded Gentiles Mm -hmm. and who are able to accuse the Gentiles of sort of wanton behavior. And Paul is saying, hang on a second. Uh, if we're going to do this in, out, righteous, unrighteous thing, uh, you're not better than them. In fact, if anything, you have a higher accountability because you received the Torah and they're just operating based, you know, their morality is coming from conscience and from nature. You've had direct revelation of God through the angels in the Torah. So let's not, let's not pull this like we're righteous and they're not like nobody is. Hmm. That's a lot different than Reformed theology that says at the core of who you are, you're a piece of crap. That's not what he's talking about. But what he's basically saying in Romans, um, all the way up to Romans chapter 11, his argument is this, is if um, we're, we all suffer the human condition, so we all need the mercy of God, and that's exactly what you get. So the mercy of God is extended to all. And so even the tone of like um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you know, that the tone is the, is a mis is a mistranslation. How about this? Like, Oh, everybody said, hmm. don't you know, like mercy extends to everybody. And so he's not doing an ontology of human nature. He's describing 
human existence that we actually have a common ground with those people we've thought were were unrighteous and and we're we're really being very arrogant when we count ourselves as the as the righteous as over against them not only that but um in the in book there's a dialogue that i have with bruxy cavey and he takes us back to some of those old testament texts that paul is quoting and it's like really clear that that um paul paul will say well you know your righteousness is useless in the same context he'll talk about righteous people and so has he really just said nobody on earth is righteous or is he, or are we just saying um that those who that that there are those who claim to be righteous who live righteous lives but there's also those who claim to be righteous that are like complete complete uh hypocrites so even in the texts that he's quoting that seem to make it a universal that we're all really unrighteous he's contrasting hypocrites from those who are actually walking a godly life so that's something to consider um all right so and then finally finally um i'm just gonna say all right let's do the anthropology then reformed anthropology comes out of the augustinian latin legalistic west that says everyone is born damned you are you are born guilty of adam's sin and and that it would be better if you weren't born in fact and it's like you're all in a big cemetery and God walks through the cemetery and he just decides to resurrect some people. And, and, and then when he does that, he, um, you know, it's sort of Lutheran theology that, that Christ, Luther, or one of the disciples said that now uh, Christ comes with his mercy, clothes you with Christ, and now you're a snow-covered dung. So you're at, at your heart, you're still a piece of shit, but you've now been clothed in this mercy. And, that yeah. would, and I've heard this. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. Why is that? Well, because it, you're still at core really bad. This is so different from the Greek East. And it was one of the reasons, one of the things that drew me, not just to the East, but to the ancient church, to the dead guys before mm-hmm. the reformed were toilet trained, you know, it was <laughs> even, even before the schism between East and West, the ancient church said, no, at your heart, you're a diamond. And sin is like tarnish on the diamond. The diamond is the image of God. You haven't lost the image of God, but because of the tarnish, you've lost the likeness. And Christ has come to cleanse that tarnish so that the diamond in all people would shine out and, and radiate the light of God. And so that's, it's, it's entirely opposite anthropologies. And I would say that the diamond one, Gregory of Nyssa and people leading up, up to him, uh, that represents a, a more beautiful view of humanity and even of the mission of Christ. It's, he's, he's saving us not from, our, um, not from our true selves, but from our false selves back into the true self. So I, wow. I'm, I'm inclined to that, and I'm inclined to see um, that in Jesus' parables. So let me just, a few words. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son— the pearl of great price. That's you. Hmm. And he has sold the farm to come find you. Um, and and I, th- I think that's a beautiful picture of the value he placed on people. So when I'm preaching to heretics, I, no, not heretics, when I'm preaching to hypocrites, like when I'm in, talking in the mirror, um, when I'm preaching to hypocrites, then I, I may actually emphasize the, the unrighteousness that's there because they are not in touch with how, uh, in touch with that. They don't, they don't see their need for mercy. When we're, when we're speaking with broken people and addicts and prisoners, we, we don't have to tell them they're messed up. We're like, oh, no, I see the diamond in you. You are a pearl of great price. And so our message does shift depending on our audience, and that's really easy to see in the Gospel of John and the four Gospels. Mm. So let me ask this. Um, Here's a question. It says, throughout his gospel and Acts, Luke seems to regularly make the point that sorrow for sin and a desire to change directions, uh, repent, accompanies true saving faith. Uh, Some examples, uh, Luke 18, the rich young ruler, you know, says, hey, I'm a good person. Uh, I've followed all the laws. And Jesus says, yeah, but 
you need to sell, you know, give away all your possessions to the poor, or sell all your possessions and come follow me. Um, we've got end of Luke nine. Jesus uh, has those several sayings about, you know, you got to leave your father and mother. You got to whoever puts their hand to the plow, but then looks back has no place in the kingdom or, or can have no yep. part of the kingdom or something like that. Uh, you got Zacchaeus yep. who has an encounter with Christ and immediately, you know, in an afternoon completely turns and changes his ways um yep. and even uh paul and barnabas in that hilarious scene in acts 14 uh where everybody thinks they're a greek god and they they start like no stop we're you're missing the whole point you gotta stop worshiping these gods we've got the true god for you to worship and it's it's christ um all of these are a calling to to turn to change your behavior um and I'm wondering, like, do we run the risk of preaching too uh, too easy of a gospel, too soft of a gospel, if we're not talking about the need to turn from their wickedness? At the same, I mean, there's you got these. I'm not saying don't say the good news of hey, the 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 one you are seeking is Christ. Behold the Lamb. But is yeah. there not a behold the Lamb? Now turn from your from your current way of doing life. And turn and follow his commands. I mean, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll follow my commands. Yes. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Is it it a necessary component? Of course. (laughs) So um, that's the thing is when we start talking inclusion, people make these assumptions that we're saying sin doesn't matter. The cross doesn't matter. Response doesn't matter. Like, I never said that. All I'm Mm. saying is, A... Um, the cross was not an easy gospel. Go tell Jesus it was easy as he's in Gethsemane. Hey, Jesus, this seems like an easy gospel. Well, then I hope you won't mind wiping the blood from my forehead. Hmm. Hey, Jesus, this seems too easy. I don't know. You can see my ribs because the skin has been flayed away by scourges. Does that seem easy to you? How about this? Um, Jesus, this seems too easy. It's like, I don't know about you, but I can't breathe here. I'm hanging from nails. Does that seem easy to you right now? <laughs> you know? so, um, so, that's, uh, so that'd be one element when we hear that, oh, it's easy. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, I see. So what is it that you're going to supplement to his crucifixion? And this is actually where Reformed theology is right. They're like, so let's see. He does Gethsemane. He does the scourging. He does the crucifixion. And then he dies and so you're going to go be nice today and that's going to actually add something (laughs) oh that's too easy but so 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 i would start there with the incredible infinite cost of this uh, of what he has done for us that he bore now let's come to the let's come to then a response it's like do i have to respond to get Jesus to die for me, or am I responding because Jesus has died for me? And so John has just got it. He nails it down. We love because he first loved us. And so let's just talk repentance then. What does repentance mean? Metanoia is a Greek word. On the one hand, we used to associate it with self-loathing and self-flagellation and all of that stuff. It's like, if I could just hate what I was enough, that's repentance. Hmm. And then uh, there is a grace teaching that I think overreacts, and it says it's nothing more than a change of mind, metanoia, change of mind. It's like, no, this isn't just a new doctrine. Like, it's not a rational exercise in changing your mind. It's much more than that. And here's how I believe the ancients saw it, that metanoia is, first of all, turning, and it is the turning of your noose, N-O-U-S, and the noose is the organ of your soul, sometimes translated heart, mind, or spirit, although we have Greek words for all those three as well. But if you take it as the organ of your soul that turns towards the overtures of divine love, it's it's when I turn towards the love and kindness and mercy of God to heal my deepest needs and meet my de- and 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 or meet my deepest needs and heal my deepest wounds. It's a real deli- it's a real turning to the cross. Intrinsic to that is a turning away from all the idolatrous false comforts that I was using to medicate my deepest needs and heal my deepest wounds. 
So, uh, but I don't feel like I usually have to tell that to an addict. They're like, no, I've already tried it. I bottomed out. It doesn't work. And so what I'll do with folks like that is I'm like, how is this working for you? Not just addicts. How about religion? Like, hmm. So you've been doing the religious thing. You've been doing the religious striving. You've been keeping all the commandments like the rich young ruler. It's like, how's that working for you? And then, and they're like, it's, it's really not. I'm so exhausted. I'm like, here's what you could do. You could turn away from that towards the kindness of God, but the turning doesn't create the kindness. The entire, so the big, big, big thing in it is we, we have to get this idea that, that, God's love comes first and we're responding to that love and, um, and, and that will mean letting go of my, of those other things. But it's really, that's, that's, that might, that might even motivate me. Maybe the pig pen smelled bad to the, to, to the prodigal son, but it wasn't his return home that opened up God's doors. He was already running down the road towards them. So as long as we get this in mind that God has initiated our inclusion in his great redemption, then a response that turns from uh, the false ways to that true way, that, that's not legalism. That's not problematic. It's like, absolutely. I'm all on it. You know? Yeah. That sounds good to me. <laughs> it is. It, it does seem like the real world too, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, if God is if God is all loving and I'm in hell perishing, um, then maybe maybe I'm going to go home because he and that, and then I'm generally surprised, right? I'm surprised because I do my little repentance speech, and I'm not even negating that. I think some people almost scorn the prodigal son for making his repentance speech. Like, no, no, that's okay. Jesus composed it. <laughs> uh, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. It's like, oh, absolutely. I am mercy. You just forgot that. You yeah. are included. You were already a son. You didn't become yeah. a son by coming home. Yeah. You were a son when you left. So uh, um, I don't want to, I don't want folks to think that somehow in a message of inclusion underplays the, the destructive elements of sin or the necessity of repentance. Of course it doesn't, but it's, it's founded on something different now. Yeah. So. Hmm. so what of those who are coming from different, uh, different, I could, I was going to say different world religions. And then I was like, well, maybe I'll say different faith walks, um, or faith experiences. Um, those who are coming from, let's say, Buddhism or, or Sikhism or Hinduism, where they're, you know, you talked last time, I think, about hey, they, their understanding of God just isn't yet running through the filter of Christ, effectively. And it's our job to say, behold the Lamb. Um, yeah. But, I mean, Buddhists, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about world, world religions, but Buddhists... Uh, my understanding is that they believe in this kind of just general force that's out there and, and we've got to empty our minds and basically become nothing in order to tap back into that force. Um, how do you, what, what is the turning that's required there? Uh, do we need to say, Hey, you got to stop trying to aim for Nirvana cause that ain't it and walk away from that tradition. I, I prefer introducing people to a, a news that is so beautiful and powerful and, and connects with their real lives that it makes the things they need to let go of redundant. Hmm. So in other words, not you need to let go of Buddhism and embrace Christianity, this like other religion, but more like whoever you are, whatever journey you're on, I have some good news for you that the God you've been groping for in, in hopes of whatever you think salvation is, um, I believe that that he's revealed himself in an incredibly beautiful way in this person we call Jesus Christ, and and I can in I I can I, I'd like you to meet him, <laughs> and so I know with your with Impact Nations, you are having Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and whatevers all over the world meeting Jesus Christ yeah. prior to abandoning their old religion and embracing a new one. Yeah. 
and instead they're having an encounter with the living God in, in Christ. And that encounter leads to a relationship that leads them to conclude, I, you know, these other gods weren't answering anyway. Or yeah. <laughs> this, this Buddhist worldview actually has some good elements to it, but there's nothing in it. That, like the Buddha never says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Yeah. And so I, um, I've, I've known of Hindus as well, where, uh, where, you know, you have a whole house group movement and they, Christ joins their pantheon of gods, but then they find out Christ is the only one living in them. So what's the point of the other gods? Hmm. When they come to that conclusion, that's when they get baptized. So I feel like, um, I, I feel like somehow there's something in, in us that wants to, to put a deadline and a condition on the next stage. And I'm like, no, the next stage is meeting Christ and they can do that now. And when they do, you know, maybe they'll become a Jesus following Buddhist, or maybe they'll become a Christian, whatever. As long, but will they hear uh, the simple, here's the simple part. Yeah. Can I help you hear God? Let's say they have a burden. I'm like, that sounds like a big burden. I think we should tell God about that burden and see what he says. And then they hear God. And then like, okay, now that you're God, let's go the next step. And um, just the other day I was praying for a, praying for a guy and he was, he was in real distress and he's hyperventilating. I'm, I, I'm like, I, I'm in, I don't know what to do. And then I'm like, Oh, I, um, can you look in my eyes? Yes. Okay. Can you see the light in my eyes? Yes. What's the light saying to you? I love you, you know, or so, well, that was easy. Um, let your light shine before men that they may, you know, see your good deeds, glorify your father that's in heaven. And this is why I'm a big believer in, in impact nations and that you guys go out there and it's not so much about like, how are we going to convert them? But more like, how can we let our light so shine that they come to see the light as the lamb hmm. or like, that we get an opportunity to point to the Lord Jesus Christ, say what, what just happened to you isn't generic God out there. What just happened to you is the God who came in person and died and rose again, and he's alive and he lives in you. Behold the lamb. Would you like a behold the lamb? Would you like a relationship with yeah. the one who lives in you? Hmm. Yes, please. And I think you were just, was your dad, was it Romania the other day? The, Bulgaria. Or oh. Bulgaria, and he just sent me a testimony about this. This very thing happened. It's like a whole group of people. Would you like her to know the one who lives in you? Yes. <laughs> okay, that wasn't very hard. Shouldn't there be an argument here? Or yeah. don't they have to bring out all their idols first? It's like no. Once they encounter the one who lives in them, the idols become redundant, which is where and it I, kind of. Started I think this. that's where I was touching on a, a twenty minutes ago regarding the turning from the former things is yep. that, you know, there is there a requirement for an immediacy of that, you know, uh, or is that like, is that required in order to officially be saved, shall we say, or find salvation, find Christ, or is that the fruit that comes from finding Christ? Yeah, I would go with the latter. And I would, because it is very important that you said, in order that what? Like, it's re is it required? Well, it's required if you want to be free from that idol. <laughs> you have to let go of that idol. But is it required to know Jesus Christ? Oh, no. Um, but then, like, it will have a tremendous impact on your experience of Christ. Yeah, if you're still... And, and sometimes Christ was, I mean, with the rich young ruler, he just let him walk away sad. It's like, this guy needs to make a clean break. And some people do. And it's not that it's not that the clean break is so that God will love them or live with them. But it's more like, you need to make, you're not going to gradually work your way out of this or that idolatry. You've got, you've got to cut it off or, yeah. or you're going to be... You trying to know me and living in bondage at the same time. It right. You can't, well. you can't abide in, in him. You can't be grafted onto the new vine if you're still hanging on to the old vine. Uh, and so you can't, you can, you don't have access to the same abundant life. If you're 
too busy trying to draw life from something that doesn't give life to begin with. Yeah, I want to somehow I want to I, I want to nuance that a little bit so that I want I want to say in Christ, we have been grafted on. That's the truth of our being. Mm-hmm. But what you're describing is the way of our being when we cling to the idols is that we experience the chains of those idols. Yeah. And the, the troubling thing about that is that let's say you try to do that three for three years. Okay. You're, you're simultaneously, you know, engaging Christ as best you can and still in love with your idol. After three years, I rarely hear people say, well, that idol didn't work. What I do hear them say is, wow, Jesus really didn't work. Yeah. I'm like, I wonder why. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and so I don't know, but I want to be careful. Cause I'm like, I'm aware of, I'm aware of idolatry in my own life. So sure. I'm not, I'm still walking with Jesus and I'm still struggling and, and it's not like he says, well, you can't, you know, I'm going to withhold from you if you don't let go of the other thing. It's more like, open your hands, Brad. And I'm like, mm, I'll open one hand. <laughs> and, it's like, oh. and he's like, okay, I'll pour as much as I can into that one hand because that's, yeah. that's how my word, I'm not a withholder. Yeah. Our problem when we hang on to idols is we're accusing of being a withholder, right? Yeah. Like, wow. So. That's good. <laughs> this is so much fun. Thank you so much. Uh, if people would like to uh, to read your stuff, I, I know you're you've got blogs that you're doing often. You're on Twitter. What, what's the best way for people to find you? Probably, uh, probably my website, bradjersack.com, and my books are on Amazon. Um, if they want to read more frequently and stuff, like they can they can see what I'm doing at Twitter and. Facebook and Instagram just under my name as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, to be fair, I'm quite often just I'll post stuff there and I don't check the feed and I don't really follow the comments very often. I don't have right. time. But if they want me to respond, the, the best thing is the email. And yeah. um, and actually through the website, bradjersack.com, there is, there is a way. If you, send, if you send a contact through the website, sometimes it's a week turnaround seven days or so but i'm doing my best awesome yeah and i i have had the privilege of sending you questions via email and you send some very thoughtful responses sometimes very quickly actually (laughs) it's impressive um i use you as a procrastination tool i'm afraid but no (laughs) (laughs) well i'm glad i got it work whatever else is in front of you (laughs) 